everybody. Welcome to First Free Church. Thanks for being here with us today. I hope you enjoyed the, the time of worship already, and now we get to just keep it going by worshiping God through studying his word together. We're in this series called Created to Connect, and we've only got two more weeks after this, so that's only two more weeks of watching that video. So uh, my son thinks that video is hilarious. Um, I think it's the sex part, but Anyway, we are going to get into a really interesting topic today, but before we go there, um, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be the church. I was talking with another pastor this week about church and what that is and what that means for us, and it struck me that we haven't talked in a while about how this is not the church, this building is not the church, this gathering is not the church, but the church is you, the church is the people of God. And there are all these things that the Bible says the church is supposed to be together and do together, the one another's of praying for one another and encouraging one another and serving one another and even holding one another accountable and confronting one another that we can talk about in this room and we can teach about in this room and in this building, but it's not usually the best place for it to happen, for it to be practiced. That's because most of what the Bible says about the church doesn't actually happen at the weekly gathering. That's just the corporate time where we come together and worship and we get some teaching that's unified together so we're kind of all on the same page there. But if we don't take it deeper, then we're missing out on most of what the church is supposed to be. And the reason why I bring that up is because the message we're going to talk about today and the message that we'll have next week and the week after that, these messages in, in particular are going to hit people in some different ways. For some people, what we talk about today will be extremely uncomfortable. Um, and, and that goes for the next couple of weeks as well. And for other people, we won't go far enough in these messages. I won't go far enough in these messages. There'll be so much more left unsaid. And, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that this is a, a broad audience here with a lot of different age ranges. And so we have everything from fourth graders to retirees and everything in between. And so we want to take that into account as we're talking about things. That means there are certain things that we won't get into here that maybe are a little more raw and deeper than are appropriate for this particular audience. Another reason is time constraints. You know, we're going to focus on a topic today. We're going to give it about 40 minutes or so, and there's a lot more that could be said. So I want to remind you up front that if what we talk about today hits you in, in a particular way, resonates with you as something you need to work on in your life, you cannot think that this message alone is going to be the silver bullet for you that's going to change anything. I talked to someone after this, the first service this morning already who's, who's been through a, a cycle of trying to deal with the stuff we're talking about today. And, 
and just keeps finding that it's not sticking. <laughs> and, and he finds victory and then he goes back and he finds victory and then he goes back. And, and the issue is there's more action that needs to be taken there. And so we're going to talk about what that looks like today. But I want you to know up front that, that you may walk away from today's message and go, but I have more questions, but I have more, but I, that's not what's going to take to help me. I've tried this before. And you have to go deeper into the community of God to get what you need there. That's small groups, that's Christian counselors, that's pastors. There's a deeper community that unless we're willing to take our issues and our struggles there, we aren't going to see a lot of victory in this life. If you're one of those people that you just kind of come here on the weekend and you don't have a deeper community of believers that you're with at other times during the week, it's going to be a struggle for you to find victory in the areas we're going to talk about today. So I want you to know that right up front. That's very important as we get into this. You need to be connected with a community of believers if you're going to find victory in what we're going to talk about today. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is a message called Lust, Porn, and Adultery. That's the title of today's message. So just easy, fun topics to get into. And I hope you're ready for that. I'm going to share some teaching on this. If it if it strikes you in a particular way, you're going to need to go further. This is not going to solve it for you. This could be the spark that sets you on a journey to finding victory in some of these areas. I also want to say that I'm going to try to be very tactful in how I talk about these things, recognizing that we have a broad range of people who are in the room. And, and there'll be some people for whom this, is, this is, represents deep hurts. This represents uh, deep areas of distrust or deep valleys of, of sinful habit that have been very hard to kick. There are some people that have never been honest with themselves about where they're at in these areas. And I, keeping all that in mind, I'm going to try to be as tactful as I can while also being transparent and, and raw in moments. But I do want you to know if you're a parent and you happen to have a child in the room, I'm not sure if I see any that, that I would be concerned about in here, but a lot of people watch online too. And so if you've got your kids in the room, you need to know that in my mind, this message is for fourth grade and up. And so if you've got someone under fourth grade, you may want to put in the earbuds at home or something like that. And if you haven't had certain conversations with your child already and they watch this message, you will be forced to have those conversations. So that is your warning. Maybe this is exactly what you needed to dive into those concepts. With that out of the way, let's pray. Let's ask God for wisdom and to just make us sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit as we go into this together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your continued work in our lives. As we struggle with many different sinful activities and many that become habits for us and many that become almost hardwired into us because they've been going on for so long, Lord, I pray that you will help many of us to find victory from these strongholds today, or at least the start of that journey. Please make us receptive, God, to the conviction of your Holy Spirit, Lord. We want to confess our sin to you. We want to see radical change in our lives. We want to see freedom and, and the unleashing and releasing to be all that you want us to be and experience a wonderful, joy-filled, blessed life. And so, God, I pray that you would touch our hearts today and, and reveal areas where, where we have struggled, areas that we need to grow, things that we need to surrender to you, Lord, so that you can do everything in us and through us that we know you want to do. And in your name we pray, amen. So today, we're going to start talking about lust by talking about what Jesus said about lust in Matthew chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be uh, to really begin and end the message. 
And Jesus is teaching his disciples about the area of lust. And in verse 27 of Matthew 5, here's what he says. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Let me pause there for a minute to explain what adultery is. Not that way. Just I'm going to explain what adultery meant to Jesus' audience. See, in Jesus' audience's day, the Jewish tradition around adultery was that adultery was when a married woman slept with a man or when a married man or any man slept with a married woman. That was adultery. When a married man slept with an unmarried woman, that was not adultery. That wasn't great, but it wasn't adultery. And adultery in the Jewish tradition was one of the worst sins you could commit. So there was kind of this double standard about what actually constitutes adultery. And if you were a married man and you didn't sleep with your wife, but you slept with another woman, but she wasn't married, not good, but not adultery. And so when Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, that's probably how his audience heard this. They're thinking in their mind, okay, this is when a man has, has slept with a married woman or when a married woman, she, she's in the audience, she's thinking this is if I were to sleep with someone else. And now listen to what Jesus says in verse 28. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa, that is a very different definition of adultery than they were used to. It's not even dependent on taking action with someone. It's internal. It's in the mind. It's in the heart. Adultery, one of the worst sins in Judaism. And Jesus is backing that up and saying, if you're looking at a woman lustfully, then you're committing adultery too. I want you to notice a few things about this. First of all, of course, is that it doesn't matter if the woman is married or not. Jesus doesn't make that a condition of it at all. If you're looking at a woman, not a married woman, with lust in your heart, he says it's as if you have committed adultery with her. The second thing is Jesus doesn't say, if you're looking at a woman with lust in your heart, then tell that woman to put a hoodie on and a long skirt because she's causing you to sin. That's not what Jesus says. Where is the sin in this passage? The sin is with the person who is looking lustfully. They're the one who has committed adultery. Now, Paul later in the New Testament will talk about the importance of modesty, and that's still a command as well, but that is disconnected from this issue of the sin of adultery, where it's the person who is looking with lust that has committed the sin. And the third thing that I want you to notice is that this really, another thing that's radical about this is backing up the idea of what is sinful here into not just the physical action, but inside the mind. And as Jesus would say, inside the heart. It's not even that you've committed an action that's adultery. It's looking with lust, looking lustfully. He's not talking about temptation here. Temptation happens to all of us. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted. And did not sin. So the temptation is not the sin. But looking lustfully. Looking desiringly. Having that temptation to look. And then dwelling on it. Jesus says that's what is the same. As committing adultery. Lust has been a frequent flyer. In Satan's toolkit for compromising people. For a long time. You go back to Jesus day. In the Roman era. And. Uh, sexual immorality was in some circles fashionable. In fact, the, the wealthy and the politicians in some cases, it was, it was weird if you weren't involved in a lot of sexual immorality. And I guess in many ways that hasn't changed throughout the, 
the eras. Uh, you know, wealthy and politicians are often caught up in that, but, but the, the masses have their issues with lust as well. And today it seems like it's only become more available and more accessible and, and more perverse in many ways, more addictive than ever before. It's technology that allows for on-demand lust in a way that couldn't have been imagined 2,000 years ago. And of course, I'm mostly talking here about porn, uh, but also sexting would be a factor here as well, which in many ways is a response to porn, where people are texting explicit content and images to each other. And a lot of that has come about because of the prevalence of porn in our society today. I'll I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But it's become such a big problem. Porn is such a problem. Sexting is such a problem. Sexual immorality is so prevalent in our world today that especially when it comes to this issue of pornography, even people who have no biblical framework for morality are recognizing that this is incredibly destructive to the individual and to relationships. There's an author, a feminist author named Naomi Wolf, who's, a, who's written many different things, um, who actually ran afoul of her feminist community many years ago when she broke away from what was the predominant narrative about pornography and sex work at the time, which is the idea that sex work is real work. It's the idea that porn is liberating uh, for men and women. It's good to bring sex out of the bedroom. It's good to open up everyone to all the different possibilities of sex and sexual partners and sexual positions and all sorts of different things. And, And porn can actually be helpful and therapeutic in your relationship and it can increase your sex drive and all sorts of things that were being written about. I remember this back when I was a teenager, seeing all these people saying that, that porn can help your marriage and porn is a good thing for you. And if you're struggling in this area, porn can be an answer to you. And Naomi Wolf actually did the research and she actually talked with a bunch of young people about this, men and women, and here's what she wrote about it. For most of human history, erotic images have been reflections of or celebrations of or substitutes for real naked women. For the first time in human history, the image's power and allure have supplanted that of real naked women. Today, real naked women are just bad For two decades, I have watched young women experience the continual mission creep of how pornography and now internet pornography has lowered their sense of their own sexual value and their actual sexual value. When I came of age in the 70s, she says, it was still pretty cool to be able to offer a young man the actual presence of a naked, willing young woman. And she goes on to talk about the idea that this would be very liberating for people and the claims that, that pornography is, is therapeutic and helpful and liberating in so many different ways. And she says, but does all this sexual imagery in the air mean that sex has been liberated? Or is it the case that the relationship between the multi-billion dollar porn industry and compulsiveness and sexual appetite has become like the relationship between agribusiness, processed foods, supersized portions, and obesity? If your appetite is stimulated and fed by poor quality material, it takes more and more junk to fill you up. People are not closer because of porn, but further apart. People are not more turned on in their daily lives, but less so. The young women who talk to me on campuses about the effect of pornography on their intimate lives speak of feeling that they can never measure up, that they can never ask for what they want, and that if they do not offer what porn offers, they cannot expect to hold a guy. The young men talk about what it is like to grow up learning about sex from porn and how it is not helpful to them in trying to figure out how to be with a real woman. 
Mostly when I ask about loneliness, a deep, sad silence descends on audiences of young men and young women alike. They know they are lonely together, even when conjoined, and that this imagery is a big part of that loneliness. You know it's bad when even people with no biblical foundation for morality are saying this is incredibly destructive and damaging to the individuals and to the relationships and even to people that weren't directly involved with that imagery who are just trying to operate in this world. Porn makes things worse, not better. It leads to addiction and loneliness and anxiety and depression and loads of other problems. And there are so many heartbreaking stories of people who have been caught up in this and whose lives in many ways have been ruined by this. There's a book called The Porn Myth, which is written by a, a person who has a faith in God but wanted to write a book that had no biblical foundation to it at all. It's just from a secular perspective. What is the effect of porn? He includes some stories of people in there. I want to share a couple of them with you. This is from a young man. He says, I've been watching porn at least every day for the last 10 years. I am 23 years old. I got married when I was 21 and I still haven't had sex with my wife. Not because I don't want to, but because I can't. I can't stop watching porn and I'm, I'm unable to become aroused enough to have sex with her. It has been two years and I can see the pain in her eyes every time we try. I would do anything to change the last 10 years. I would do anything to choose love over porn. I want to love her with everything that I have, but my addiction to pornography has broken down our relationship to the point that we are now separated until I change or we agree on a divorce. I still haven't been aroused by anything other than pixels on a screen for years. I would do anything to go back and choose love. It's heartbreaking. This one's from a high school student. He says, I'm addicted to porn. I watch it every single day. I've probably spent over $100 on sex chats. I feel like I have no control over what I do. No matter how disciplined or in control I think I am, I always have porn on the back of my mind, and I always want more. This is no way to live, he says. I've realized that, and I want to change it. I need to change it. You see, it turns out that Jesus was right. It's not just the physical action that's a problem. It's the lust of the eyes that's just as big of a problem. Porn ruins the lives of the people who get caught up in it and get addicted to it. It negatively impacts others too. Girls say that they have to use sexting and naked pictures of themselves to try to compete with and get a guy and hold a guy. There was a famous actress a few years ago who had a bunch of naked pictures of herself on her phone. Someone hacked into it and released it on the internet. And she was asked by a news magazine, why did you even have those pictures there? She says, I took them for my boyfriend. They said, why, did, why would you do that? And she said, quote, either your boyfriend is going to look at porn or he's going to look at you. This is the world's take on sexual intimacy today. And even those without a biblical foundation are saying, this is destructive. This is harmful to relationships. This is ruining real intimacy. And some people look at what the Bible says about sex and think, well, the Bible is just too strict and too repressive and too boring. You Christians, and many Christians, you know, I understand this perspective. Christians at times have said things like, well, sex is just for procreation. It's for having kids. Pleasure is a byproduct of it. Make sure you don't have too much fun. It's for, it's for making babies. 
And that is certainly an element of sex. But this idea that many people in the world have that the Christian view of sex is just this sort of boring, strict, God has all these rules for how you should do it and, and what you shouldn't do in it, they, they don't actually understand what all the Bible has to say about sex. Because yes, there are some don'ts that are in there to try to keep us, some guardrails to keep us from delving into destructive areas, but there's also some very positive things to say about sex. A lot of times we in the church can think of sex as sort of Satan's realm almost in a way. When it's not, it's God's realm, so all Satan does is pervert it and distort it and turn it into something destructive. But God has wonderful things to say about sex. We don't talk about it a lot, but I mean, I already gave the disclaimer today, so let's talk about it. I'm going to take you to a book of the Bible that is probably a good candidate for the least quoted book of the Bible. It's not one that's included in our Awana books, as far as I know. I don't think too many of our kids are memorizing these verses yet. Maybe after today, we'll change that. You know where we're going. Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse one. This is Solomon's song of songs, more wonderful than any other. And now the woman is talking here. Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like the spreading fragrance of scented oils. No wonder all the women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. This just went from G to PG really quick. And it'll get even, even more explicit as we move on. We'll skip a couple chapters. We'll go to chapter four. Don't say I didn't warn you earlier. Verse five of chapter four says, your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Be honest with you. How many of you, that's the first time you've heard that verse and that that's in the Bible, right? Some of you are like, I did not know that was in there. I just skipped that part. He says, your breasts are like two fawns. Why would he say that? Two fawns. It's because fawns require a certain gentleness and tenderness as you approach them. You can't just sneak up on fawns or they'll run away. So you've got to be gentle. You've got to be tender as, you, as he approaches his love. Then verse six, he says, before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Now, I don't know if you know much about Israel geography, um, and, and we certainly pray for Israel and the people of Israel right now that are, that are going through a difficult time. But if you look at the map in the back of your Bible, you will not find a mountain of myrrh or a hill of frankincense anywhere because that's not what he's talking about. Earlier in the book, he talks about the, the hanging satchel of perfumes that hangs down from her neck. It's going to come right about here. And so the mountain of Myrrh and the hill of frankincense are referring to something very, very different. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. This is not just about lust. This is about desire. This is a, not objectifying his wife. This is valuing her beauty and admiring in it. Uh, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Come down from Mount Amana, from the peaks of Sinir and Hermon, where the lions have their dens and leopards live among the hills. So we're going to go someplace safe, someplace secluded. And notice that she's a bride. They're a married couple. He says, you have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine. Your perfume more fragrant than spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Your clothes are scented like the cedars of Lebanon. You know, honey and milk were very valuable, precious things back then. This is how God described the promised land, the land that was flowing with milk and honey. 
Only now it's not an analogy of a very resourceful and, and abundant land. He's talking about passionate kissing here. Then he says her clothes smell like the cedars of Lebanon. So maybe she had a cedar closet or something. I, I don't know how that worked. But then in verse 12, he says, you are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Three different ways to say this is an exclusive relationship. This is just for me and you. This is something that just you and I have together, something special. Then he says, your thighs shelter a paradise of pomegranates with rare spices, henna with nard. You can figure that one out on your own. Verse 14, nard and saffron, fragrant calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes and every other spice. You are a garden fountain, a well of fresh water streaming down from Lebanon's mountains. And now the bride responds to all the words of her husband. Awake, north wind. Rise up, south wind. Blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love. Taste its finest fruits. The very next verse, here's the husband's reply eagerly. I have entered my garden, my treasure, my bride. I gather myrrh with my spices and eat honeycomb with my honey. I drink wine with my milk. And the wife responds again, O lover and beloved, eat and drink. Yes, drink deeply of your love. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Can you believe that is in there? Now let me ask you a question. Does that sound like repressed sexuality to you? Does that sound like boring sex to you? Not at all. Biblical sex is awesome sex. Within God's design for marriage, sex is a beautiful, wonderful thing in that intimacy, that secluded space, that hidden private garden. Sometimes we think of sex as that, the realm of the world and the realm of Satan. That's not how God designed it. That is a perversion. That is a distortion to get us off on the wrong track. And of course, it's a distortion that causes all sorts of problems. And thanks to modern technology, it's become even more perverted and more pervasive and more accessible and more destructive and more addictive than ever before. And young people today, growing up in this world with all this access at their fingertips, they get caught up in this distorted view of sex, and it sets them up for failure before they even have a clue what God designed sexual intimacy to actually look like. So you need to know we're not talking about these things because we want to judge you or shame you or make you feel uncomfortable or awkward. We want to talk about these things because what God has for you is so much better than what the world has to offer. And we want you to experience freedom in your life from the strongholds that weigh you down and set you back, the traps that are set for you in this world. But how do we do that? How do we find freedom from these lustful addictions that we face in our lives? Let's go back to Matthew chapter five. See what Jesus says. In Matthew five, he's got the answer. He says, so, he just finished talking about lust and adultery. He says, so, if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. At our staff meeting a couple of days ago, I told our team that we were going to have stations around the room for eyes and hands if anybody wanted to follow through on Jesus' commands just right away, just a time of response. We'll sing a song. 
Is Jesus advocating for bodily mutilation here? No, of course not. He's already said that this is an issue of the heart. But he's using a common rabbinical approach to teaching called hyperbole, which is to use exaggeration to make a point. He's saying, this is what a big deal this is. This is how serious and important this is. It's as if if you wanted to get this out of your life and the thing that were causing you to do it was your eye, you'd gouge it out. Or it was causing by your hand, you would cut it off. That's how important this is. And I want to be clear, I'm not just talking to the guys here. This is for women as well. Women today are, are becoming increasingly addicted as well to pornography. And sometimes it's images and videos, and sometimes it's fantasizing about guys. Uh, we had a, a conversation this week with our staff, men and women, about this topic. And, and some of the ladies brought up how it's in a lot of books, even books you wouldn't expect. Sometimes you think you're just going to read a good novel, and then boom, there's pornographic imagery just spelled out for you, written out for you, for you to read and fantasize about. And that leads to lustful thoughts. And TV shows now, there are some TV shows that almost seemed designed primarily to provide women with pornographic imagery. And women get caught up in these things and, and addicted to these things. And the reason why this imagery for men and women can be so addictive is that it, it tricks your brain almost into thinking that you've had a real intimate relational connection. And the chemicals are released as if you did. And your brain says, ooh, I want more of that. And there are usually triggers that we have, like stress or frustration or anger or boredom uh, or, or scrolling through and we see something on our, on our phone. And that becomes a trigger for us. And then all of a sudden, all we can think about is wanting to fulfill that desire that we have, that temptation that we have. Another hit of those chemicals again. And over time, this becomes a habit that's built up that, that creates trenches so deep, pathways so strong in our mind that it's so difficult to break. That's why Jesus says you have to be willing to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. He doesn't say that about many things. That's a very extreme thing that he says about this particular issue because it's so difficult to overcome and you have to have that mindset about whatever is leading you to sin. Jesus at the time could not have said if your cell phone is causing you to sin, throw it away. But I think if he were to say it today, he might have something like that to say. You can look at the eyes and the hands as analogies for anything that is prompting you, that is making it convenient, accessible for you to get caught up in the sin of lust and addiction to lust. And so maybe it is your phone. And if it's your phone, then you have to be willing to take drastic action. Whether that looks like getting a dumb phone for some people or in certain cases, you need that for work. So can you get something like covenant eyes to put on there and have an accountability partner so that, so that that monitors your phone and it blurs out the sensitive information, but it gets alerted to anything you're not supposed to be looking at. You can put it on your computer. You can put it on your phone. You can put it on your, your tablet. I was talking with a guy earlier this morning. He said, well, I, I could put it on my phone, but I've still got my tablet and my computer. I'm like, you can put it on all of it. You gotta be willing to take drastic action. Maybe for you, it's a, a certain TV show that you've really gotten into and you love to watch and the stories are so good. But there's also this other stuff that leads you into lust. And so maybe you need to stop watching that TV show or maybe, and here's where the drastic action comes in, you need to cancel your subscription to that streaming service. And, and a hush fell over the crowd. <laughs> but I love those other shows. Okay, you know what? Maybe you can just say, I am never gonna watch that show again. Maybe there's a feature that lets you hide that show from your library. 
But have you ever found yourself saying that before and then going back to it because it's just right there and in a moment of weakness, you just do it? You need to be willing to take drastic action, cancel that service. It's better than gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand. You've gotta be willing to take drastic action. Whatever it is from Jesus' perspective, it's worth it. And you know what's better than being caught up in the addictive trap or better than being freed from the addictive trap is being freed for something better that God wants for you. Freed for the blessings in life that God wants for you. Jesus didn't start off this message with a bunch of rules about lust. He didn't start off with a bunch of don'ts. He actually started off with a bunch of blessings. That's how he began his message. So go back with me to Matthew 5. Look at verse 3. He says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. This message from Jesus was not one of condemnation. It was a message of blessing. And that's my message for you today. It's not to judge you or shame you. It's to say God wants so much better for you. If you're caught up in lustful sin, if you're caught up in addiction, I want God's blessing on your life. Chances are you already know what you're doing is destructive for you and is wrong and is sinful behavior. And Jesus says here, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. You may have tried before. You know you can't overcome this on your own. You need God's help in your life. He says that God blesses those who mourn. He's actually talking about sin there. When we mourn our own sin and we come to God and and agree and admit that our sin is wrong and we come before him and say, Lord, I am grieving over this. I can't believe that I've been doing this. It's wrong. I admit that before you. God blesses that. God blesses those who are humble that come to him and say, God, I can't do anything on my own. I'm nothing. I really need you in my life. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice and let God transform our way of thinking. That's what you need. You need God to transform your mind, to transform your thoughts into something new. Now, that's not going to happen overnight, but it's something Paul says you have to let God do. You have to invite him in to this process, and you have to be consistent with it. Galatians 5 says you have to let the Holy Spirit guide your life, and then you won't do what your sinful nature craves. You have all sorts of cravings that your sinful nature brings up in you and you feel like you want to pursue those, but the way to overcome those is to let, to allow, to give permission for the Holy Spirit to come in, for God to come in and change your life. And that's gonna take time and consistency and relationship with God where you're spending time in his word and in prayer and with other Christians talking about the things of God and praying for each other and keeping each other accountable. And only then will you start to find freedom and victory from the strongholds that are in your life. Not immediate freedom. Chances are you didn't get into this place overnight and you're not gonna get out of it overnight either. It's going to take time. But if you're willing, if you're willing to go there, if you're willing to take drastic action, if you're willing to follow God's word, you will experience not repression and restriction, but liberation and freedom in life that you maybe haven't experienced in a long time. Lustful thinking slowly but surely enslaves you. Breaking free unleashes you to experience God's blessing in your life. And even breaking free from sexual sin releases you to have an impact in God's kingdom more than you could have imagined before. It's hard to serve Jesus with all your heart, soul, and mind when 
behind closed doors, you're constantly violating his design for your sexuality. And so breaking free from sexual sin releases you to be more impactful in his kingdom. And all of this, of course, is only possible because Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. A lot of people, Christians, when they get caught up in uh, sexual sin, they feel, they feel a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. And, that, and that's true even after they've confessed to God, even though he says that, that he's washed your sins free and it's as far as the east is from the west and he doesn't remember them anymore. When you repent of your sin, they're, they're gone, they're wiped free. There's no need to feel condemnation anymore for that. You still wanna be careful and cautious, but it's, it's not this prolonged feeling of guilt that God wants for you. It's not this forever feeling of shame that God wants for you at all. Remember what Jesus said to the promiscuous woman. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when she was weeping at his feet and Simon, the host of the house, the Pharisee, was annoyed by this woman. But, but Jesus said, hey, listen, Simon, she's been forgiven much, so she has more love and appreciation to show. That's the way God looks at people who have messed up. If you come to him and confess and repent and turn around from your sinful ways and invite him in to be a part of fixing this stronghold and overcoming this stronghold in your life, then what you will find is God is even more appreciative of you because you have more love and appreciation to show. Jesus didn't come to this earth to live a perfect life and set this standard so that when you don't live up to it, you feel guilty about it. He came to this earth and died for you on the cross so that his death could provide a payment and a sacrifice for your sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's a beautiful thing. Jesus paid for all of our sins. And as we've talked about throughout this series, not so that we can go on sinning, not so that we can just continue so grace may abound more and more, not at all. He wants us to have a freed life from sin, be freed from slavery to sin, but it's all made possible because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. So where do we go from here? What do we do now? I mentioned at the beginning that this message is probably not gonna solve anything for anybody, but it may set you on the right path. So let me show you what that path could look like. Number one, confess your sin to God. Admit that it's wrong, Repent, turn from it, run the other way. Flee sexual immorality, the Bible says. Number two, pray and ask God for his help in breaking down whatever stronghold is in your life. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Nothing is impossible with God. There is no stronghold in your life that with consistency and surrender and obedience to God, cannot be overcome. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is faithful in 1 Corinthians 10, that God is faithful and won't allow you to face temptation beyond what you're able to handle. He will always make a way of escape. There was a very popular preacher a week ago who was speaking about sexual sin. And one of the ways he concluded his message was by saying that there are some people who know that sexual sin is wrong, but they find that after a while that living according to God's design is just, quote, unsustainable for them. And that's basically how he wrapped up the message. Well, it's just unsustainable for them. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there is no temptation that you face 
that you cannot overcome with God's help. And in fact, that God always provides a way of escape. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Listen, I couldn't help myself is never an excuse for a Christian. We may feel that way, but that's not what the Bible teaches us. It may be hard, it may be difficult, it may be incredibly challenging, it may require the help of other people and resources and tools to help us overcome that, but for a Christian, it is never impossible. Another way to think of it is this. I just thought of this last night. What God is promising here in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is that he will guard, he will protect your free will when it comes to temptation to sin. That's really what what he's saying there. He's not saying, I'm going to keep you from doing anything sinful. No, you have a responsibility in this case. You have agency to make a choice in this case. But he is saying, I will not allow Satan to present you with a situation that is so strong of a temptation that there's no way to escape. You're just going to have to sin. That's what he's saying. God protects your free will when it comes to facing temptation to sin. He will never allow you to face a temptation that you are not able to get out of. He will always make a way of escape. I just couldn't help myself is not an excuse for a Christian. Number three, get help from God's people. Get help from God's people, a trusted friend, your small group, a pastor, a Christian counselor, a mentor. Listening to a message like this is not going to be enough. You have to take more steps and you need the community of God in your corner in some way with people you can trust holding you accountable or you will not find victory over this. I'm almost certain of that. You need other people in your corner, other people of God. Number four, take drastic action to cut out the triggers and the access. Whatever it takes, you have to be willing to do things that people around you might find to be extreme and drastic and bizarre, as strange as cutting off your own hand. You seriously canceled Netflix? What's wrong with you? Yeah, but it's better than cutting off my hand, okay? That's the step I'm willing to take to get rid of the lust that is taking place in my life. The last thing that I wanna share with you today is maybe the most important thing because I'm talking about primarily what happens when followers of Jesus deal with lust in their life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been freed from bondage to sin, the power of sin, you've been given a new life and new thoughts. God wants to transform the way you think. He's promised to never let you face a temptation that there's not a way of escape out of it. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't have those promises. If you haven't trusted in him, then you don't have that kind of relationship with him where he is your guide through life. And so if you're finding yourself stuck in sexual sins and you recognize that and you've never trusted in Jesus, then you will not experience freedom from that. It's not going to happen. And so today is the day where you need to come before God, your heavenly father, and say, I admit that I am a sinner and I am messed up and I can't get out of this on my own. And I know that Jesus Christ died for me on the cross to pay for my sins, to give me a new life. I want to experience that new life. And you come before God and you confess your sin to him and you let him know that you want new life in him and you want him to transform the way you think and to give you freedom from bondage to sin. And that starts you on a journey. He doesn't make you perfect right away. Man, that'd be nice. But he doesn't. It's a long journey. We use a big theological word for it called sanctification. Where over time, the Holy Spirit works in your life. As Galatians said, we read it earlier, you let the Holy Spirit work in your life. You walk closely with God. You walk closely with the people of God in community. And you will experience, little by little, freedom from strongholds in your life. As we wrap up our message today, after this last song, our prayer team is going to be up front. And today, probably more than any other day, there's going to be a strong feeling of, I don't want to go up there. But I want to remind you that our prayer team is not just here for today's topic. 
They're up here for whatever you need prayer for. Maybe it's a, a sickness in your life. Maybe it's the healing of a loved one. Maybe it's some other struggle or issue that you're facing. Maybe it's a, an important decision that you need prayer for, you need wisdom for. There are lots of reasons that we need prayer in our life. In fact, if you have a prayer need today that is not related to the topic of today's message, I wanna challenge you to lead the way and go first because you'll break the ice for everybody else. We can have some important conversations and times of prayer for each other. And this is what the Bible tells us to do. James says, confess your faults to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. You wanna experience healing and freedom in your life? Make sure you've got people who are praying for you and know what's going on and can lift you up before the heavenly father. Let's pray together right now. Lord Jesus, you came and died so that we could have freedom from so many different aspects of this world that are distortions of your great design for us. You built this world as perfect and it was messed up by sin and, and you knew that was gonna happen. You designed us with free will so we could freely love you or reject you. And now we face the consequences of humanity tainted by sin and in so many ways distorted and, and perverted into things that just wreck our lives, Lord, and they lead to depression and anxiety and so much discouragement. In some cases, people wondering, is this any way to live? Should I even go on living? And yet you have something so much better for us and you have promised to make that possible for us, not without hard work, not without help, not without walking closely with you. So God, I pray that for some people in this room today, this would just be the start of that journey or maybe starting that journey for another time, but actually sticking with it this time, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be a people that would not heap shame on, but would heap love on just as you do, who would look at, at each other with all of our failings and all of our flaws, the way you looked on that woman in Simon's home and said, wow, how much love and appreciation she shows. God, may we have that perspective with each other.